For those of you that are new to our church, we've been studying through the Gospel of John, and uh, we have just gotten to chapter 3, and we're going to be considering just a small portion of that today. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that uh, my wife had been taking money out of our checking account regularly, and I, I hoped it was going for my Christmas present and not some other thing, like, like the casino down the road. And sure enough, I found out what it is. It's a wedding ring. After 28 years, I get a wedding ring. <laughs> Actually, I had a wedding ring 28 years ago, and over the years, it shrank. cheap gold <laughs> and so one day when I wasn't wearing it somebody burglarized our house and uh, so somebody else is wearing my wedding ring somewhere today <laughs> I'm sure or else it's in a pawn shop waiting to be bought for that special day uh, but I got a replacement ring uh, at Costco it was a wonderful ring and then somehow I lost that one day when I was washing my hands at a restaurant I was being good Walked away and never saw it again. And so it's been several years, and now I have a wedding ring, and if I lose this one, I'm afraid, Pastor Larry, that I'm going to be in your office getting some counseling. <laughs> in fact, if you have some super glue, I'd like to put some right around there. Right <laughs> but of course, my wife, being the, the wonderful uh, woman that she is, she didn't just give it to me you know um when we were over for my daughter's wedding uh, a week ago yesterday um she we we were married in the same church in Wenatchee that our daughter was married in and uh right before the picture taking she pulled me into the the cry room and uh, which is right behind the plat the uh, auditorium and she gave me this ring and she said do you remember where we were 28 years ago when we got married and I said right here yeah right here <laughs> Before our wedding, we went into that room and had a little time together before they started taking pictures and whatnot. So it was a, perfectly, a perfect gift, wonderfully given. And that's what our salvation is. It is a perfect gift, wonderfully given. And I want to just think about our salvation today from John chapter 3, including that verse that is so famous here which is verse 16. I want to read just verses 14 through 17. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. These four verses say the same thing four different ways, four different aspects. They, they add to each other. That God wanted to give us salvation, and He did give us salvation. The perfect gift from God is God's gift to you of salvation. Now the word salvation is kind of one of those theological terms. We don't use it a lot, obviously, in our common language. We would use the word saved, and sometimes in Christian circles, when we talk to people and say, are you saved, or have you been saved, they think, 
from what? My son was about mm, four or five years old when we lived in Bordeman, Oregon. It was right on the Columbia River. They had a swimming area carved out of the river. It was bowl-shaped, and it got deeper like this all the way, kind of like a cone. And we were out there swimming one day, and he was over there, and I was over here, and he was going to come straight across to me. Now, he couldn't swim yet. And so he was walking across. Well, he didn't know that in between it was the bowl and it was deeper. And as he was walking, it went like this. And as he started walking, I started running. And right before he went down, I grabbed him and pulled him up. That's what the world thinks of and what we often think of when we say, have you ever been saved? Well, no, I've never nearly drowned, you know, or whatever. But it's a great picture of what God does. God grabs a hold of us out of the world of sin. God has saved us. The saving work of God is much greater than that physical saving that I did for my son. And I want to think with you today about the, the explanation, if you will, of God gifts to God's gift. Kind of pull it out just a little bit. Now look with me at these verses again because he tells us what we're saved from. In verse 15, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. He draws this contrast between perishing and having eternal life. In verse 16, God so loved the world that he who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For some reason, the King James translators put everlasting life there, and they put eternal life in the previous verse. It's the exact same words. Perishing, eternal life. There's a great contrast drawn. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn them so that they would perish, but so that they might be saved. So I want to look at that contrast of salvation, and the first part of it is we are saved from hell. Somebody came in my office this week. I said, I'm going to preach about hell on Christmas Day. They kind of did what you just did. Are you kidding? (laughs) You know why we need to talk about hell, folks? Because we need to understand what we are saved from. What we're saved from. We can't appreciate what we're saved to unless we know what we've been saved from. Hell is partially characterized in these verses. Matthew 5.22 and Luke 16, hell is a place of fire. In Mark 9.43, hell is a fire that shall never be quenched. That means it's not a fire that burns things up and it's over. It's a fire that goes on and on and on. In Matthew 8.12, hell is a place of outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you're in total darkness, you don't know what's going on around you. In Jude 13, hell is called the blackness of darkness forever. In Matthew 10, 28, hell is a place where God will send people. And that's partly the reason that God gets a real bad rap, but if we look again at verse 17, it says it's not God's intent to send people there, but he will do it. In Matthew 5, 29, hell is a place where our body can be. Hell will not be a spiritual perception only. It will be a physical reality as well as a spiritual reality. Hell is not going to be a party with the friends from the low places. 
I've got friends in low places. And a lot of you know the rest of it. And I got, a, I got word for you. When you leave this earth, you're leaving them behind. There's not going to be a party in hell. Not with that description. If you want to believe in heaven, you need to believe in hell because these are, look at, look at all these references. Only one of them comes away from the words of Christ himself while he was on earth. Those are the words of Jesus himself. Aren't you glad you're not going? <laughs> Aren't you glad you're not going? And on Christmas Day, we need to just take one second and say, Oh, God, thank you that Jesus came so that I'm not going to hell. That ought to be part of your worship life. Thank God that we're not going to perish, but we're going to have everlasting life. God not only saves us from hell, but he saves us to heaven. Heaven is partially characterized in these verses. Beloved, we are now the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed let me add a word, exactly what we will be like. But we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him for we will see him as he is. The first part of heaven is this. You are going to be completely like Jesus in terms of his character and his physical body. You're not going to be gods. You're not going to be divine or omniscient or those kinds of things. But you're going to be like Jesus in his perfect character. Can you imagine that in heaven there will be no temptation to overeat like there will be today? <laughs> you won't look at that wonderful meal and say, bah, bring it on, bring it on. <laughs> and then sit in the chair later. <laughs> It'll be total, and that's a very simple perfection, but it will be there. You will never be tempted to lie. You will be never be tempted because you will be sinlessly perfect. Do you know those moments of joy and peace and, 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 and all those wonderful things that you have now in part? You have them throughout the day, but they're interrupted by the temptations and the challenges. Those things will be yours perfectly and completely and continuously. You will be so happy your mouth will get tired of smiling. We're going to be like him. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. You will always be in the presence of the Lord for eternity. I don't know about you, but when I come to worship service, sometimes I have a hard time concentrating. Sometimes I get distracted. Some of those are very spiritual distractions. You know, something, that, something else that's going on in church. But it's still a distraction. We're going to be with the Lord perfectly, permanently, continuously. And then these words from Revelation also characterize heaven. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. You need to understand something. Heaven is not just going to be floating in the clouds. New heaven and a new earth. You think, you know, when I drive down my hill on the church road uh, on, in the mornings coming to work, and I look over there on a clear morning and the sky is blue and Mount Baker and, and the rest of the mountains are sticking up there, that's just the most beautiful view to me. Coming down that hill, it's all perfect. Like, it's like a picture right there. And that's after the earth has been corrupted by sin. 
Just think what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. We can't even imagine. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is a a, a huge, huge city. The scripture describes it as 1,500 miles in a cube. 1,500 miles square plus high where the believers will have their dwelling places. That's where Jesus is preparing a place for you. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them. Do you notice how God layered up those words and so it really emphasizes the idea that we're going to be face to face with God the Father himself. God himself will dwell with them. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no pain for the former things have passed away. You know, one of the challenges of Christmas is that sometimes there's tears because there's memories and there's longing for things that aren't. But there's coming a day when that'll be over. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. All things new. What an incredible experience awaits us. Aren't you glad you're going? I guess it's not that big a deal. (laughs) Pastor, you haven't been to my house. You just don't know how glorious my existence is here on this earth. (laughs) You're ready. Okay, Chuck, well, you can go then. Oh man, I'm ready to go. I went, I'm, I'm working out down here at this Everyday Fitness. I'm the poster child for you should buy a membership at the fitness club, you know. <laughs> I'm the before picture. Man, I'm looking forward to a perfect body. I'm looking forward to that perfect existence. I love you folks, but I would much rather be around you when you're perfect. <laughs> and you'd probably rather be around me when I'm perfect too. A great existence is awaiting us. A great existence is awaiting us. And on Christmas Day, we should stop and say, thank God, I'm not going to hell, and I am going to heaven. What a wonderful thing. Not only, though, is our salvation something that's in the future, our salvation is also something present. Because when Jesus says here in John chapter 3 that he's going to give us eternal life, It is a quality of life as well as a destination in heaven. And that quality of life starts at the moment you accept Christ as your Savior. In John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus was talking to people who were alive, humanly speaking. Now we know that Jesus raised some people from the dead during his time on earth. But that was not the focus of this statement. He said, I have come. These people are spiritually dead. And I have come to resurrect them spiritually and also to give them an eternity in heaven. I have come that they may have abundant life, not just surviving or gritting our teeth or muddling through this life. Abundant life means that we are saved from the effects of sin in our life now. Second Peter uh, verse 1 
as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." We have escaped the corruption of the world. What's the corruption of the world? Well, here's a few of them. Here's some Christmas corruptions from which we have been delivered as Christians. Or may I say, we have the potential of being delivered. The corruption of materialism. Now, I like beautiful things as much as, as, much as all of you, maybe more than some of you. But I'm so thankful that I don't live my life by stuff. If I get this, then I'm really great. Or if I have that, you know, I've got to have the latest of this or that because of what it makes me. I love great tools. I, I don't have nearly as many as Roger Engler or, you know, somebody like, or, or Rob Houston or somebody like that. But I love tools. But I love tools because what I can do with them, not because people come into my garage and go, wow, you're something. I love, to have a, I love to have a good computer that works well in the office, and I do, and I, I'm thankful for that. But it's not so that people will come in my office and go, wow, you're on the cutting edge. That's what materialism, materialism is wanting stuff because what it makes us. We buy clothes so people will pat us on the back and go, wow, you're beautiful, you, you're right up to date, you're in vogue, you know. That's materialism, having stuff to make your life worthwhile. When we were in Seattle, we heard of some fairly well-off people who, who stole. They had a stealing habit. I, I don't know if it was true, but I heard of one who had a stealing habit, and they had a deal worked out with the store where somehow somebody came around on the backside and made it right. Why do you steal when you're already well-off? More stuff, more stuff, more stuff. The corruption of selfishness. Is it your way or is it what's best for your family? Is it your way or what's best for your neighbor? Is it your way or God's way? Christmas is a great time to be selfish. You know, it's hard for children to learn to appreciate what they get and not to want something different because this doesn't suit me. Are you selfish about family? Why doesn't my family spend more time with me? God's up in heaven saying, why don't you care more about them? This is a Christmas corruption. The corruption of pride. Look what I got. Look at all the family members that came to see me. Oh yeah, I'm something. I'm the king of this family. Yeah, look at my presence. The corruption of sensuality. Living for food, living for things that are physically pleasurable. God does not condemn the eating of food. Believe me, we're going to have a great feast at our house today. But he does condemn living for sensual pleasures. That's really the essence of 1 Peter 3, 4, when he says the corruption that is in the world through lust. The word lust does not have to do with sex. It has to do with the desires of the flesh, one of which is sex. Sex is a wonderful thing in God's place and in God's time. 
but it is a terrible thing to live your life by. It is a corruption that we have been delivered from. We're delivered from the corruptions of the world. We don't have to live by these things. When we go to work tomorrow or the next day or whenever it is, and and somebody has upset our apple cart, we don't have to say, who are they to upset my apple cart? Because that's not how we live our life. We live our life for God. We've been delivered from that. What a great thing. Not only have we been delivered, we've been saved from the corruption of the world, we are saved to a new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a verse many of you are familiar with. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We've been saved from corruption to a new life. You know, on Christmas Day, you ought to stop and say, how did it used to be in my life? How was it a year ago? How was it two years ago? What's something that God has taught me? What's something that God has helped me with? What is some part of the new life that he has built in me? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that he is building me from, he's transforming me into the same image of the Lord from glory to glory. In other words, we, we move from one elevation or one notch of glory to another in the Lord. And we ought to stop on Christmas and look back and say, you know, I used to be held in the, in the bonds of sin in this area or that area. Now, I'm not perfect. I've still got this area and that area to work on. But look what God has done. Look how he has freed me. It's real easy to get discouraged about where you aren't. But it's much more encouraging to start that discussion from where have I been and what has God done and now where do I need to be? Galatians 5.22 and 5.23 defines a new life this way, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, truthfulness, gentleness, self-control. Did you know that righteousness is fun? I want you to think about that a minute. Because some of you are going, well, I'm not totally sure. I know righteousness is right. I know righteousness honors the Lord. But did you know that righteousness is fun? Here's what I mean. Do you enjoy the guilty conscience you get when you sin? After you do that bad thing and then the Holy Spirit goes, that was wrong. Do you like feeling that way? (laughs) I don't. Righteousness is fun. Sin is not. Do you like apologizing for wrong behavior? Do you like to say you're sorry? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, really have to say you're sorry? I don't. The more we live righteously, the less we need to apologize. I'm not talking about being mean or hard-hearted or cold. I'm just talking about you can live better and better and better day by day. What a great wonderful thing that is are you glad when relationships disintegrate because of hurtful actions or communication well of course not so the more righteously you live day by day by day the more joy there is in your life 
We have been delivered from the rottenness and the control of sin into the righteousness of God. How is this perfect gift wonderfully given? Through the person and work of Christ. That's one part of the blessing of the gift. Look at John 3 again, verse 14. Even as Moses, was lift, as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is obviously a prophecy. Christ himself telling Nicodemus, look, here's how this works. I'm going to be lifted up. And clearly, to Nicodemus, with his understanding of the Scriptures and of common society in that day, it, it clearly inferred that Jesus would be crucified. It, it, was not, it was not inferring that Jesus would be put up on a pedestal. It would, that he would be put up on a cross, which was an instrument of death. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here's the wonderful thing about this gift. Jesus did the work for you. Jesus did the work for you. You do not have to earn your salvation. Now, some people really don't like that aspect of salvation. They would really rather earn it themselves. The problem with that is it's just not possible. Listen to this quote from John MacArthur. The death Jesus tasted was the penalty of our sin. He received the full force of, of all that the devil could throw at him. More than that, he received the full expression of God's wrath over sin. In a few hours on that cross, Jesus absorbed the full penalty of sin. If we were to suffer in hell for all eternity, we could never pay the full price. But Jesus gathered up an eternity of punishment, paid it all, and walked away from it a risen Savior. That is power. In every possible dimension, Jesus Christ took all the pain and agony of death and tasted every bit of it for us. That's what makes this gift so wonderful. Not only does God give us the ability to be delivered from hell to heaven, from the corruption of sin and to the glory of the new life, but God makes that easy. Now, I'm not saying it's always easy to live righteously. I understand that. But Jesus did the hard work. Believe me, if you think it's hard to live righteously, you don't know hard until you try to pay for sin and absorb the wrath of God. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us. The second aspect of of this wonderful saving work is this. The perfect gift is given to us through faith. John 3.16, again, how do we get this? By believing in Him. In verse 14, when, when Jesus says, As Moses was lifted up, so the Son of Man shall be lifted up, he refers to an Old Testament story. And if you, if you don't remember it or if you've never learned it, there was a time when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they were complaining and, and, and uh, running God down, if you will, and God sent fiery serpents, it says, to bite them so that they would die. And Moses cried out to God and said, God, don't let all your people die. And and God told Moses to make a serpent or a snake and put it on a pole and lift it up. And if the people would look at it, they would live. It's where the old hymn comes from. 
Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. It's recorded in the word, hallelujah, that you only have to look and live. Those people in the Old Testament had to look at that as an evidence of their willingness to to submit to God and to exhibit faith in him. That's how they were physically saved. Obviously, there was not some magic cure in the serpent. It was was their faith in God that saved them. God tells to us, look at Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. As we do that, his work of salvation for us cleans away our sin. What a wonderful thing God has done for us. He has made our salvation easy. He's made it easy. How should we respond to such a great gift wonderfully given? First of all, you should respond to such a gift by receiving it. In John 1.12, he says, To as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God even to those who believed on his name. If you've never received the gift of salvation, you're rude. You're rude. How would it be at Christmas time? Maybe this has happened to you. Somebody brings a gift and the recipient basically turns up their nose. Eh. It's rude. God has given you a wonderful gift. You want to be gracious? Receive it. Put your faith in Christ and receive the gift of salvation. Number two, appreciate it. That's what I'm really talking about today is appreciating the gift of salvation. How do you do that? Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips giving praise to his name. Honestly, at Christmas time, I'm a little bit more aware of how great it is to be a Christian than other times of the year as I see other people frantically go from store to store. And I realize they're being driven by this because if they don't get the right gift, oh man, they're going to feel terrible. No, all this stuff's going to happen. And I think, brother, sister, (laughs) you need to know the truth. If you know the truth, Christian, you should be thanking God for it. Say, thank you, God, for delivering me from hell, for delivering me from the corruption of sin and delivering me to heaven and a new life now. Number three, adorn it. Do you know that Titus 2.10 says that a righteous life adorns the Savior or beautifies the Savior? You have the opportunity to make God look good. Tim Neufeld was in my office this week. He and Esther are basing their ministry now out of Linden, their home to care for her parents who are, who are uh, running downhill fast in their older years. And he'll be going back and forth to Africa and other parts of the world. And he was in visiting, and somehow we, one of the things he talked about was the women in Africa, when they get their hair done, it takes about two days. Oh yeah, two days. And it costs them about a day's wages to get it done. But that's what they'll do because, in their opinion, to get it to look beautiful, that's what has to be done. Do you know you have the opportunity to make God look good or to make him look bad? People around you know that you're a Christian. Some of them do. And your righteous life adorns God. It makes him look good. 
Now, I don't say that in a way, I understand that you cannot add anything to God. I, I understand that. But in terms of his reputation, you can add. And then number four, recipiate, reciprocate the gift. Reciprocate the gift. You cannot earn your salvation, but you can demonstrate real appreciation by giving back to God. Romans 12.2 says that your life lived in a dedicated manner to God's honor and to God's activities is a reasonable or a logical sacrifice. When you stop and say, wow, God has done so much for me, how do you respond to it? You respond to it by saying, God, I will live for you 